Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter three. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our discussion of Romans chapter 3. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption, which is Christ Jesus. God put forward Jesus as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. What's an expiation? The act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing. Otherwise, atonement. God put forward Jesus as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that God himself is righteous and that he justifies the person who has faith in Jesus. That comes from Romans 3, 24 to 26. What's justification? Justification is God's righteous act of removing the guilt and penalty of sin while at the same time declaring the ungodly to be righteous through faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice. You are not justified by your circumcision. You are not justified by the law of Moses. Paul wants them to know we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption, which is Christ Jesus. God put forward Jesus as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith, an expiation by the blood of Jesus to be received by faith. Paul's in the middle of an argument. Once again, it's a carryover argument between Romans chapter 2 and 3. Paul was writing on a parchment scroll. There were no chapter divisions. The whole letter to the Romans is one continuous argument. We got part one of the argument in Romans 2, and we get part two of the argument today in Romans 3, making the cut of circumcision. Christians in first century Rome remember the audience. Some are uncircumcised Roman Christians and some are circumcised Jewish Christians. Remember Emperor Claudius and the edict. He's dead. It's 54 AD. Jews can return back home to Rome. Let's first take a look, though, tonight at the Christians in first century Jerusalem. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by King Herod Agrippa I. This is recorded in Acts 12. James is the very first of the apostles to be martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ. And men, some men came down from Judea in Acts 15. They were teaching the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension or debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question of circumcision. Now, who are the elders? Paul will tell us in Galatians 2 verse 9, James and Cephas and John. Cephas is Peter. They were the reputed pillars of the church. It's not James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, because he's been killed in Acts 12. It's James the Just, the bishop of Jerusalem, Peter and John. They are the pillars of the early church. So being sent on their way by the church, they, Paul and Barnabas, passed through Phoenicia and they passed through Samaria, reporting great conversion of the Gentiles there. And it gave them great joy to all the brethren. Remember Samaria, uh, Phoenicia, what tough territories these were. 
When they came to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, they were welcomed by the church, by the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. So this evoked, this event is called the First Council of the Church, the Jerusalem Council as recorded in Acts chapter 15. They'll be discussing some questions. One of the most hotly debated one is, is it necessary to circumcise or to charge new Christians to keep the law of Moses? The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stands. Peter rose up. Peter, the prince of the apostles, the leader of the band, first on every list, the first to know Jesus was God, the Messiah, the anointed one. Peter says to them, stands and says, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word and of the gospel and believe. He's referring to to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, up at Caesarea Maritima. God knows the heart were witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. But therefore, why do you make trial of God? By putting a yoke, and he's talking about that heavy yoke of the law upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly kept silent. And they listened then to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders had been done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, James the Just, the Bishop of Jerusalem, replied, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. He was James the Just, the Bishop of Jerusalem, not James, the brother of John. With this, the words of the prophet agree as it is written. And then James the Just is going to quote from Amos the prophet chapter 9 about rebuilding the dwelling of David, the tent that had fallen, the, the, the divided kingdom of Israel. But also the rest of the men may seek the Lord all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who has made these things known from of old. So all along, this covenant was to be for all the nations, all people, all who are children of Abraham. James goes on to say, it is my judgment then that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, to abstain from the pollutions of idols, from unchastity, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Now, there were 613 mitzvah laws of the Torah, but James and the First Council of Jerusalem are suggesting that there are only four rules that converts must follow if they want to join the way. They must abstain from the pollution of idols. They must abstain from unchastity. They must abstain from what is strangled, and they must abstain from blood. Circumcision is not required. 613. 13 mitzvah laws are not required. And Paul is writing to Roman Christians now, this pastoral letter, and there's great tension in first century Christian community in Rome, Italy. Some are circumcised Jewish Christians. Some are uncircumcised Roman Christians. Circumcised Jews in Rome, Italy are questioning if the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 got it right. This could never happen today, correct? 
There's nothing new under the sun, my friends. This is happening right now. We have traditionalist Catholics today who are still at odds over the documents of the Ecumenical Council of Vatican II. Pope John XXIII, on October 11th of 1962, advised the Vatican II Council Fathers to try and meet the pastoral needs of the Church. He called Vatican II the Council. He died. During the middle of the council, he passed away. It went from 1962 to 1965, and the work was continued under the next pope, his successor, Pope Paul VI. The sessions went each autumn until the work was completed in 1965, and out of Vatican II came 16 documents. One of them, my favorite, De Verbum, on on the Word of God and encouraging Catholics to get into God's Word. But both of these popes now are saints. John the 23rd, in fact, his feast day is on the day Vatican II convened. But there are some traditional Catholics, uh, they're called trads or rad trads, who still oppose settled documents, recommendations of Vatican II, and they are very vocal on the internet. Just as there were those who opposed the settled recommendations of the First Church Council at Jerusalem, and they were very loud as well. There's tension in first century Rome, Italy, in the Christian community, and the tension is over circumcision, one thing. Paul said last week in Romans 2, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. He, his praise is not from man, but from God, there is nothing new under the sun. The Jews knew that. They knew it from Deuteronomy 10, when the Lord God told them to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn or stiff-necked. And in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord God said, circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so you may love him with all your heart with all your soul and live. Paul went on to say, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So in this new covenant, circumcision is going to be disregarded altogether and truly be a matter of the heart by the Holy Spirit and not the letter of the Jewish law. Now for the new Christians, what would replace circumcision? What would be the new covenant sign of belonging to God's universal family through Abraham? Baptism. Baptism. A visible sign of an invisible reality. Baptism would be the new circumcision for Christians throughout the entire world. Now, after that council in Acts 15, from there, Paul goes to Philippi, and that's a Roman colony. And he remained in the city some days. On the Sabbath, we went outside to the gate by the river, and it was a place of prayer. We sat down there, and we spoke to women who had come together. Women. And one of the women who heard us, her name was Lydia from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God, which could also be called a god 
God-fearer. And the Lord God opened her heart to hear and to heed what was said by Paul, and she and her entire household were baptized. Now, Apostle Paul baptized the first Christians of Europe and the very first female named Lydia in Philippi at the river there. Jewish circumcision was only for males, so 50% of the population was excluded. But Paul told the Galatians, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham offspring, heirs to the promise. So women are in now, and each child of God is baptized into divine life of the Trinity once again. Partaking in God's blessed life of the Trinity begins here on earth by belonging to God's family on earth, the church. The king of this kingdom is Jesus. The universal invitation into the royal family of God through Abraham, through Jesus, will be baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus' last words in Matthew's gospel the Great Commission in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's about to ascend to the Father, and he tells them to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Just this nation? No, all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had told them that I baptize with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me, he's mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, that fire came down on Pentecost, that first Pentecost, 120 gathered in the upper room. And again, it's Peter who stands up and gives a speech. They heard this and they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for your children and to all, to all who are far off, everyone on whom the Lord our God calls. So the Holy Spirit is poured out and the Holy Spirit convicts the heart and the need to repent, to repent and then what? To be baptized, repent and believe the good news. And the good news is what? That you though guilty, could be exonerated, that you could be pardoned and set free from your death sentence. You could be justified by the blood covenant of Jesus Christ alone, and you could be made righteous and walk blameless in his sight, and you could be back in right relationship, once again partaking in the divine life of God the Trinity. You could be cut to the heart and repent and believe, circumcised by, by the heart, by the Holy Spirit, circumcision of your heart. So to better understand Paul's letters, we have to understand what circumcision meant to the Jews. And we have to understand what the law meant to the Jews. The Jews were being set free from circumcision and that heavy loke of the ceremonial laws. Paul told the Galatians for freedom. Christ has set you free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You can't fully understand Paul's epistles without understanding circumcision and the law. So tonight, we're going to take Romans 3 and 4 together. Uh, we're going to review circumcision today, and next week, we'll review the law. So in the new covenant, God extended Abraham's family to a universal worldwide family. You'll remember from Genesis that God called Abram in chapter 12. He said, I will make of you, Abram, a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And by you, Abram, 
by you, all the families of the entire earth shall bless themselves. So by you, Abram, all the families, all, this is going to be a worldwide blessing, all the nations, all the families of the earth. In Genesis 15, God ratified that covenant with Abraham. And remember, it was broad daylight. And the Lord God brought Abram outside and he told him to look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to count them. And the Lord God in daylight showed Abram the stars. God said, so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, Showing Abram the stars in broad daylight teaches all of us something about faith. If you go outside at 12 noon, will you see stars? No. But if you go outside at 12 midnight, will you see stars? Standing in the same spot. Yes. Where were the stars at 12 noon? Where were the stars? They were there. Are those the same stars there at 12 midnight? Yes. You can't perceive them with your senses at 12 noon, but those same stars are there both day and night. You know something is always present even though you can't see it. Stars are there in the day, but we can't see them. That's what faith is. God was teaching Abraham. God is omnipresent. He's omnipresent even when we can't see him or experience him with our human senses. God is always there day or night. Faith. That's what faith is. It says in Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the men of old received divine approval. Abram's one of those men, one of those men of old who received divine approval because of his faith. It goes on to tell us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that God rewards those who seek him. So it was very merciful of God to show Abram such a powerful sign, broad daylight and stars, in order to increase Abram's faith. God said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Remember that. Commit that verse, Genesis 15, 6 to memory because Paul will use it several times. Abram believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay, this is an 86-year-old man. He has no children. The Lord brings him outside in broad daylight, tells him to look at the number of the stars, count them if you're able. So shall your offspring be. This many kids you're going to have, Abram. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. He said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abraham said, oh Lord God, how am I to know? How am I to know that I will possess it? How how am I to know? Do you ever do that in your prayer time? Lord, you're praying for something and, and you just want an answer. You say, Lord, how am I to know? Maybe you're discerning something, a vocation. Lord, how am I to know? Something about your kid. How am I to know? Zachariah's first question, the angel said, your old barren wife's going to have a baby. And he's Elizabeth. And he said, how shall I know this? Mary, the handmaid of the Lord, the Lord tells her and she says, let it be done according to your word. She knew she had submitted to intentional virginity. She wondered, I don't know a man, but let it be done to me according to your word. Abraham very humanly says, how am I to know? And the Lord in his mercy says, Abram, bring me a heifer, three years old, a she-goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in two, lay them half against each other, but he did not cut the birds in two. In Abram's time, this wouldn't have been too strange because this was commonly done in Near East ancient treaties. It's called making a blood covenant. The parties involved would walk through the path of blood between the slaughtered animals as if to say, may this be done to me if I do not keep 
my part of the oath. I will keep my word or my own blood will be spilled upon the earth. This specific blood covenant was known as the Abrahamic covenant. And the blood involved in this covenant, as with any blood covenant, signifies the life, the lifeblood, the life from which the blood comes. Life is in the blood. Draining an animal of blood meant draining it of life. Abraham brought God all these. He cut them in two. He laid them against each other. He didn't cut the birds. When the birds came down, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses. Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now someone else in Genesis was put into a deep sleep. You know, the first man, Adam. The Lord God caused him to fall into a deep sleep. Abram, as the sun is going down, the Lord causes a deep sleep to fall on Abram. And lo, a dread and great darkness fall upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for surety that your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and they will be slaves there and they will be oppressed for 400 years. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between. Abram's deep sleeping. So is God alone that's passing through the blood? Abram's in a deep sleep. God alone passed through the blood. This blood covenant would not depend on the faithfulness of Abraham. God doesn't allow Abram to even walk through the blood. Only God passed through the blood, Abram sleeping. This blood covenant does not depend on Abram being faithful. The blood covenant only depends on God being faithful. Even if Abraham is not faithful, God will be faithful to the blood covenant. Only God is responsible for upholding this <laughs> covenant, and he's taking Abram's part himself. God's saying, if this covenant is broken by either party, may only my blood be shed. The blood covenant will depend solely on the faithfulness of God. God put forward Jesus as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 3.25. This is God in the second person of the Trinity. These are one in the same. He is faithful to the Father in all things to the very end. An expiation by the blood of Jesus to be received by faith. Abram was sound asleep in a deep sleep. The covenant was solely dependent on the faithfulness of God to uphold. God alone passed through the blood of the split animals in the form of a cloud of vapor and flame. That's usually the Holy Spirit in scripture. The blood covenant will depend solely on the faithfulness of God. Now, take that in a minute. Did God's words come true to Abraham? The surety that your descendants would be sojourners in a land not theirs and slaves for 400 years. The Lord continues, but I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Well, they had 400 and 30 years of slavery from Egypt. And in Exodus 3, the Lord tells them that they will despoil the Egyptians. And we know in Exodus 32 that they had enough gold from Egypt to craft a large golden calf, one of the gods of Egypt named Apis. The time when the people of Israel dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. When our study ended last year, we ended Genesis with the patriarch Joseph. We left when Joseph was in charge, second in command, the viceroy of Egypt, the Pharaoh's right-hand man. The very next book in Torah is Exodus. It begins with Moses the Deliverer. 430 years had passed, and there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and war befall us. They set taskmasters over the Jews to afflict them with heavy burdens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the Egyptians 
Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they made the people of Israel serve with rigor, and their lives were bitter with hard service, mortar, bricks, and all kinds of work in the field. They made them work and serve with rigor. They were slaves for 430 years, just as God had told Father Abraham. In Exodus 2, the people of Israel groan under their bondage. They cry under their bondage, and they cry out to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew their condition. And that time, the people of Israel dwelt for four 130 years. Now, during that 430 years, they did not have the law of Moses, but they did have the circumcision of Abram. Back to Genesis, back to Genesis 15. What happened when Abram woke up from that deep sleep? Well, Sarai was 76 years old, Abram's wife, and she bore him no children. But Sarai had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my maid. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now remember, God alone passed through the blood. This covenant's not going to be dependent on Abram's faithfulness. Even if Abram's not faithful, God will be faithful to the blood covenant. Was Abram faithful? He hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Stop, Abram, stop. What if Abram would have said, no, Sarai? We must trust God completely. We must trust God's plan. We can't take matters into our own hands. I heard the voice of God Almighty. He showed me his vision. You were included, Sarai. It's through my own seed and your womb, Sarai. This is your plan, not God's plan. Do not put your husband to the test. What if he would have said that? Just as Eve had offered Adam the forbidden fruit, Sarai is offering Abram forbidden fruit. And Timothy will warn Timothy gets a warning from St. Paul about women. Paul says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Sarai would offer Abram a type of forbidden fruit. And just as Adam had accepted the forbidden fruit from Eve, so too would Abram accept the forbidden fruit from Sarai. Both men succumbed to the temptation to transgress, offered by their very own wives who had been deceived not to trust God's word. God had spoken directly to both Adam and Abram. We see some passivity in some of the men of the Bible, men who were to be spiritual leaders. But both Eve and Sarai took the bait, and both women were deceived to not trust God. God's word, and the men went along with it. Hagar was Sarai's maidservant, so Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Cana, and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Abram went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she, Hagar, saw that she, Hagar, had conceived, she, Hagar, looked with contempt upon her mistress, Sarai. What's contempt? Feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless or deserving scorn. Despicable. Young, pregnant Hagar now had contempt for old Baron Sarah. But old Baron Sarai was in charge over young pregnant Hagar. But young Hagar was pregnant with Abram's son and his sole heir. So who's in charge of who? <laughs> young Hagar holds old Sarai's contempt. You are beneath my consideration. You are worthless. You are deserving scorn. You're despicable. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my maid to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looks on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do with her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar fled from her. It was so bad living with Sarai that being a pregnant woman out in the harsh desert looked better than staying in Sarai's household. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter three, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. 
To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.